hello all and welcome to the second episode this year of Osgood's Health Law Podcast. Once again, my name is Christoph Browning, the host for this podcast, and I purport for it to demystify health law for not only law students, but folks from all sectors of life. Uh, before jumping into this episode, I wanted to thank everyone for all their feedback on the previous one. We are here on episode two, building is standing, haven't burned anything down as yet. Um, I really appreciate those who took the time to listen, uh, mentioning that they learned something new from the last episode. That's quite literally my goal with, with um, airing this podcast. It's funny, I recall receiving one particular remark from a friend of mine stating, that I spoke as if I just completed a marathon. Uh, so if you catch me speaking real slow this episode, you now know why. Um, no, but thank you everyone once again, because every piece of advice counts for airing health law podcasts in general. And I look to improve upon every episode as we move on. Anyway, digressing into this week's episode in particular, uh, we're gonna have a little bit of a corporate twist to it as we delve into the topic of cannabis law and its connections. I consider this week's guest as a mentor of mine who is particularly suited to speak on all things cannabis since he has acted for an abundance of publicly traded licensed cannabis producers. He holds a JD MBA joint degree from Queen's Law and was called to the Ontario Bar in 2019. Currently serving as a corporate associate at the Bay Street Law Firm, McCarthy Tetro, I'd like to welcome the very own Matthew Sanders. Hi, Matthew. Thank you very much, Christoph. Great to be here. Excited to take part. Oh, and we're How excited you doing? to have you. Oh, I'm well, Matt. Um, I really appreciate um, you taking the time to just join us. I know you have a very, very busy schedule and, um, you know, making time can be difficult, but I really do consider you a expert in this area. Uh, and I just can't wait to, you know, get into the 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 mix of things in terms of all things cannabis. And, and I think the folks listening are really, really interested in the topic as well. So really, really excited to have you once more. Expert is a far cry, but uh, we'll aim for it. We'll aim, aim high. <laughs> no, I mean it, man. I, I really, really do. Um, but yeah, let's get right into it. How about that? For sure. Sounds great. So first, related to your background and the cannabis industry and your day-to-day, -day, how did you find yourself getting into cannabis law? Is this a growing sector that students should set their sights on if they are interested in it? Or would you deem the sector as niche and stagnant? Do you find specialization in cannabis law is becoming more prevalent amongst corporate lawyers like yourself? So that there are a lot of components to what can lead someone into getting into cannabis law. And then once they're in it, how they develop a practice. You know, for, for me, I would say mine was more of a fall into a lucky opportunity type of thing, uh, where when I was in 1L, uh, I knew I wanted to do the combined JD MBA program at Queens. Uh, but that, that all that really did for me was it gave me the comfort that I at least had one summer of buffer to, to decide what I wanted to do in terms of law versus business or whatever type of law I wanted to do. So I used my 1L summer as really this exploratory adventure. Um, and I found myself working at, uh, at the time, uh, a fairly small uh, privately owned cannabis company. Um, and it was a, a really incredible experience. And my, my drive was really to do it because I wanted to learn about the startup space. Uh, my whole origin was thinking, okay, working with startups, Silicon Valley style work, you know, th things like that, venture capital, emerging companies, all of that stuff was, was the most interesting to me because in those circumstances, clients oftentimes look to you for 
legal advice, business advice, life advice, just they, they, they need anything and everything. Um, and so I always thought that was, uh, that was something super interesting and maybe that's some sort of psychological thing to read into as well, but who knows? Um, in, in any case, I found myself, uh, at, at a cannabis company that had 25 people at the time in 2015. Um, so as a, as a real startup, you needed to do really anything and everything. So I found myself answering patient phone calls, helping them fill orders, uh, in the grow rooms, trimming plants, packaging up, uh, the, the shipments to go out to patients. Like it was really uh, an unbelievable chance to do anything and everything. You know, I, I worked on marketing campaigns for the Toronto Pride Parade. Um, it was really, it was, it was awesome. And I loved every second of it. And that, that company very quickly grew to being about 2,400 people over the next two years. And I, I kept jumping back every chance I got over reading week to go and work with them and, you know, help them fill gaps when they needed extra hands on deck to take patient calls. Um, and it was it, it was really a life-changing opportunity. But then when I went through OCIs, I'm the only kid who goes through in 2016 who has institutional cannabis experience. And it was the hottest thing on the market at the time. It was really in the heat of the green rush. So I didn't quite have the choice of what industry I was going to specialize in. Every firm starts rolling out their handy-dandy new cannabis practice, and I have to decide which one do I feel like I would have the most fun working with. Uh, and so I went to work with Bennett Jones, who were at the time the, you know, the probably the world's leading cannabis law firm at the time, um, and got to work with guys like Hugo Alves, Mike Lick for Vlad Klacker, Ron Fichter, like really phenomenal people. Um, and they eventually left to start uh, uh, what was called Cannabis Wheaton Income Corp, and, and they changed their name to Oxley Cannabis Group, as they, they currently are. They're publicly traded on the TSX. Um, but they were, you know, really leaders in the field that I, that I dreamed of working with. And I found myself being able to do really complex, interesting, fascinating corporate work, securities work, commercial work, intellectual property work, and then regulatory cannabis work with those guys. Um, and, and it was, it was really just complex, interesting work that any corporate or securities lawyer would want to do, but it was just focused on one industry. And luckily, everyone was trying to to run before they could walk. So you got really amazing opportunity at the time. But uh, you know, obviously, cannabis has taken uh, a different turn over the last couple of years, at least at the very least since 2016, 2017. Um, so it's a it's a very different marketplace now. Um, it's the the companies aren't considered to be healthy in many circumstances. They don't have financial statements that make it easy for them to raise money. Uh, there are a lot of companies pulling audibles. So it's shifted from being, you know, the, the M&A lawyer solely for these companies that are repeatedly buying other targets and doing capital raises with on the TSX, CSC, the TSXV, all of these different exchanges. And it's now become almost more distressed M&A, distressed capital raising. Uh, it's more, it's arguably higher intensity. Uh, but it's, if anything, the transactions just matter more. So we're doing more interesting work. We're doing more complicated work because companies have created these environments in which they need to survive and thrive. And in some circumstances, haven't quite done so in a way that contemplated a downturn in the market. So there, there are still many companies that are doing very well out there, but there are also lots that are not quite on that same page. So 
there is a, there's been a lot of evolution. I think the practice of a cannabis lawyer has changed pretty, pretty remarkably over the last couple of years. And not because, uh, not because anything really new has come about, but I think there's been more specialization than there ever has been before. You know, I, I, although I've been a lawyer for what seems like 10 minutes, I, I've had quite a bit of experience in, in many areas of, of law, uh, it, at least in the cannabis law side of things. So I, my practice is corporate securities, commercial um, things like that, but then I also do quite a bit of regulatory cannabis work, and there are now, we're now finding it, you know, big firms, small firms, people who are specializing in things like retail, people who are specializing in production, people who are specializing in intellectual property. And you know, when I got started, you kind of had to be able to do anything and everything, and that is still the way that I conduct my practice. Where you know, once I once I built the basis of knowledge that I needed to be able to do it at the beginning. It wasn't quite hard to keep it up and to be able to talk to uh, in one conversation to a group of people who work at cannabis companies about plant breeders' rights. To talk to them about vertical integration to open up retail stores in provinces that would that would allow it, and then also talk to them how they can streamline their production capacity at their uh, at, at their processing facility on another side of the country, or how they can import or export starting materials from another jurisdiction. Like these are things that the original style of cannabis lawyer had to be able to speak to, you know, in, in every sense of the word. It was you had to be a jack of all trades. Now there's more specialization. Now we're we're seeing people who are specializing in getting new approved cultivars on the industrial hemp seeds list. Uh, we're we're seeing really interesting specialty come about or expertise come about that's much more narrow than it used to be. So there's there's a lot of development and there's no sign of the industry slowing down whatsoever, but the nature of the work is definitely changing. I think just the fact that you were able to start at a company that hoisted 24 employees, but then grew to the hundreds and the thousands in a matter of years really speaks to the growth potential and the opportunities that lie within the industry and the nature of the business. Specifically speaking too, it sounds like your work has a sense of urgency tied to it now. Um, and, and that's what I got base, basically from, from what you just mentioned. And is this because of the, the nature of the work, what governmental pressures, regulatory pressures, or just everyone trying to be at the top of their game and, and surpass one another? I think it's. I think the, the there are many driving forces to it, but I think what you said last was really the thing that motivates it the most, which is with the quote unquote green rush of the cannabis space, every company was trying to take as many steps forward as possible. Like it's no secret that there are and there are companies out there that are publicly traded that don't have the operations to support the requirement to be public. There are some stock promotion uh, mandates out there that are that are not necessarily really bringing operational value to shareholders or looking to be the best operated cannabis company. Um, but you know there are part part of that comes with wanting to complete transactions at a rate that would allow for good press releases to go out frequently and with purpose. Um, so I think there, and I, I think all lawyers have really been, 
experiencing this this kind of mad rush now, especially during COVID, where their clients have sort of stepped up the expectations. And they've said, we need to close the biggest and most complicated deals as soon as humanly possible. But that's kind of the way it's always been for cannabis. It's we're creating a we're creating a deal that we want to close. We don't quite know how it's going to work. They bring the term sheet that they signed without, without speaking to their lawyer over to their lawyer and say, <laughs> let's, let's make it happen. And suddenly we have to think about, okay, we're going to need to fix the term sheet or at the very least change the structure of the entire transaction because we are in a highly regulated industry here. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's a it's a whole new ball game when you bring in an understanding of the regulatory landscape. So you know we we can't do things in cannabis all the time as quickly. There are lots of third parties we have to deal with here, and there are look. I'm not saying the regulatory landscape doesn't allow it to be done in a fairly efficient manner. It does, but sometimes agreed upon commercial terms don't quite fly. Mm-hmm. So there is a lot of adaptability that's required. There is uh, a, a lot of patience that's required because you know sometimes we're going to have to wait for a government, uh, you know, a governmental body to weigh in on a transaction or tell us what they think or what whether or not we're allowed to do a transaction. And these are things that oftentimes are not taken into account. But as the as the industry matures, people are becoming more sophisticated and more knowledgeable about these third party requirements. And soon enough, hopefully, once uh, once the COVID rush slows down a little bit and and generally we we come back to normal a little bit there might be a bit more patience in the marketplace for for any corporate lawyer mm-hmm. you, you introduced the term at the, the beginning of your response green rush i never heard of that before but it, it makes sense as to why you know the, the 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 urgency is there and the i guess the desire to close the biggest the fastest the 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 most uh, wide-ranging deals is is on top of minds for 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 these uh, cannabis companies because at the end of the day, um, sh- shareholders matter too, and, and you know um, for for them to benefit the shareholders, the, these things have to be achieved. So, uh, no, it all it all it's a cyclical little uh, motion it seems like and, and uh, way of doing business. So, no, I appreciate the answer, Matt. For sure, but do you, I'm I'm sure you remember though. Like there are there were companies that were press releasing getting billions of dollars being put into their accounts from strategic investors at you know at the time like this was this was before edibles were even a thing like Mm -hmm. vape pens and edibles only came out in october of 2019 and then really only hit the markets in december of 2019 so we're only about two years out from that but before that ever happened companies were getting billions of dollars shoved into their their liquidity and their and their balance sheets but no one knew how things were going to going to evolve. Like this was this was all speculative, and really, there is still a ton of speculation. There are new new types of products and new delivery methods coming out every single week. So, as much as there is, you know, the, the, there's the rush from like the press release perspective. There's a rush for evolution. And there's a huge amount of excitement there. So there's both the positive and the negative. So, you know, what, what I was saying before, I just do want to qualify that there's, you know, what comes with this rush is there's also innovation. Mm-hmm. No, speaking of that, no, you, this uh, leads right into 
the next question, and I wanted your opinion on this in terms of um, industry and marketplace growth. For example, psychedelics and microdosing or in increased medical cannabis use. Should students and lawyers alike prepare for the emergence of these things to enter the can Canadian marketplace and how to advise accordingly? What are your clients doing in these spaces to prepare for these sort of introduction? So that's obviously a very topical question. Uh, the, the psychedelics industry has been ramping up for the, you know probably the last two years. Uh, there are companies that have got companies probably went public about a year and a half ago um, with the with the business proposition of being able to set up uh, not not quite safe injection sites, but like, you know similar like ther therapeutic clinics where people can safely. And, and comfortably use uh, psychedelic substances for therapeutic purposes. So there's been a lot of focus on developing that marketplace. Mostly, you know, they, there are a lot of similar personalities in, in cannabis and psychedelics. There are people who are trying to capitalize on the next rush. Um, and, you know, many, many are doing it really effectively. At the same time, there is an enormous amount of evolution that has to happen in the psychedelic space. Right now, there are a number of substances that are really uh, that, that are really the focus, and you know, a, a non-exhaustive list would would be like uh, psilocybin, magic mushrooms, and the active ingredient of, of psilocin. Um, people would look at things like, uh, like ketamine, which is regulated as a narcotic. So it's probably the most easily accessible psychedelic substance to, to use for medical purposes as of now. Um, there are other ones like ayahuasca, uh, there people are looking into, you know, re really they're, they're looking into, into lots of different things. It doesn't, there is no limitation on what could possibly have a therapeutic benefit insofar, you know, so long as there's no research that, that shows those negative benefits. So there's a ton of speculation happening and there's a ton of potential in the industry. It all depends on how things evolve. So one thing that people aren't super mindful of is that cannabis all really came from a, a medical regime. It started out under the access to cannabis for medical purposes regulations, which uh, which were promulgated under the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. So the, the effect of the Cannabis Act was descheduling cannabis and the phytocannabinoids from the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act and bringing them out into an independent regulatory regime under the Cannabis Act, the cannabis regulations, and other regulations that were prom promulgated under the Cannabis Act, like the industrial hemp regulations. Uh, so there, there's, it, it, they also incorporate other provisions that are, you know, that are similarly used to regulate food. So the Food and Drug Act, Food and Drugs Act, and Food and Drug Regulations are certain terms are incorporated by reference into the Cannabis Act and cannabis regulations. So it's it's almost this this wholly different perspective on what cannabis is and what THC and CBD are. So. That that's really what the evolution of legalization of cannabis was. So right now, the, the expectation is that we still need to hit step one. We need to create that medical regime that might make the recreational market seem even remotely possible. And as of now, it doesn't quite look like it is from my perspective. I don't see it ever moving past the, the medical side. But having it medically available in and of itself is a huge development and a huge benefit to so many people. There are so many 
conditions and symptoms that people can treat therapeutically using things that would fall under this psychedelics umbrella. Uh, you know, using psilocybin and psilocin uh, for the for the treatment of treatment resistant depression, things like that. There are there are so many people who report huge benefits from from the use in that way from from a therapeutic standpoint. So once the the medical regime evolves, there is a ton of opportunity there. Once we don't have to rely on what are called Section fifty six exemptions from the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, where you can get particular individualistic carve-outs from the, from the applicability of the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. Once we don't have to rely on those in order for people to use psychedelics and for, their, for their medical purposes, then that's where we get to real development and real opportunity. And we still have some time before we can get there, but we need something like the access to cannabis for medical purposes regulations to be put into place to regulate whichever substances they, they deem to be qualified to be scheduled and, and regulated by those regulations. So who knows what it'll be? Ketamine likely won't fall into that bucket because it's already under the narcotic control regulations, but maybe they will. Maybe they'll, they'll carve it out. So there's so much unknown, but there's so much opportunity. And there's most importantly, there's a ton of potential benefit for patients out there who aren't finding their current treatments effective. It's so funny that you bring up psilocybin, for, for instance, um, I sat in on this one panel this week on how to handle exam stress, where two um, naturopathic doctors spoke on that particular um, psychedelic in particular and, 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 you know, recommended it to students almost saying, you know what, if to, to, to go through the, the exam period, especially as law students, uh, and they can relate because they, they were MDs, is, is very stressful. And I, I, they legitimately um, posted an Amazon link to how accessible these 100 milligram, 250 milligram tablets of psilocybin <laughs> are. And that was beyond me personally. I did not know it was so widely available. It was my first time hearing of, of, the, of the thing, to be honest with you. But, you know, I can have it cl click once and have it at, right at my door. So I'm, I'm curious as to why you think the recreational um, regime and, and, and phases of things aren't, are going to be slower to, 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 you know, incorporate within the Canadian marketplace and why it might uh, stick strictly to medical for the time being. So I, I think the best way to look at it is to think about, uh, is, is to think about really the pillars of regulation when it comes to cannabis, because I think that's going to be the guiding light for how things are regulated from the psychedelic standpoint. If we look even as far back as the task force for the, that uh, reviewed and analyzed the potential regulation and legalization of cannabis, they were focused on a few things. Primarily was minimizing the potential harms of consumption and use. Uh, the, other, the other real pillar was protecting public health and safety. Uh, you know, there, there are, of course, the... the you know, the equally important, but maybe not quite equally prioritized uh, goals of removing the illicit market and uh, creating a, 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 an effective supply chain. Like, let's, let's be honest here, the supply chain for cannabis has its, has its issues. And so there's no chance that the real, that that was a priority that was given equal standing to, let's make sure that people below the age of 18 aren't using substances that could affect their neuroplasticity. And that's, that is a, a justifiable 
uh, imbalance that the government struck. You know, let's let's protect young people over making sure that someone can get weed delivered to their door. So, <laughs> I, I like I'm I'm okay with that. Um, do I think that development can happen more in the future? Of course, and that will come with time. So if we're thinking about the protection of the public health and safety and the minimization of harms of use as being the, the really the key pillars, those are going to be the things that guide psychedelics regulation as well, as well as the other aspects, but those most primarily. So if minimizing harms of use, there is really not that much known from an empirical standpoint about psychedelics. If there is anyone who claims to tell you that they can give you a certain strain of mushrooms and that you will have a particular type of trip, they, they absolutely cannot do that. Your body is going, every individual's body is going to respond differently. There is bio, biological predictability is a complete fallacy. There is, there is nothing we can do unless we create boundaries biologically as well, which is what drug companies work so hard to be able to do when they're creating a product that still isn't going to be 100% consistent based on a, a patient or user's experience. So, so long as we have no ability or relatively no ability to control the, the consumer's experience of psychedelics, I don't see it being made easily available for the person who doesn't need it for medical or therapeutic purposes. And so sort of bringing it back to your story, of course, I, I, I will not be able to speak to the legality of finding uh, mushrooms on Amazon. <laughs> can't, can't tell you that's going to be kosher from my perspective, but uh, <laughs> the, uh, you know, there, there are some, odd conflicting opinions put out there about the legality of buying spores versus the mushrooms themselves. And then there is what would they fall under the regulatory landscape of precursors? Like there's, there is so much that, 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 that has to be discovered and clarified, but in any case, the use of, of mushrooms or the, or psilocybin or psilocin or, or any other substance that might qualify under this psychedelics umbrella for the purposes of mitigating what you know, I you know, McKinsey has coined the term, or I believe it was McKinsey who who coined the term chronic stress. This this relatively new phenomenon, so far as I'm aware, maybe maybe it's new, or maybe it's just being coined now. Uh, about the the extensiveness of just unrelenting, significant stress and the impacts that it can have on your body and your ability to just subsist, like not even. It, it's becoming survive and not thrive out there at this point. So I, 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 I don't doubt it that there is a huge amount of benefit to, to, for, for some people to using uh, something like psilocin to, uh, to, to treat the symptoms of that and to help them get through an experience that might otherwise be quite taxing on their mind and their body. Um, you know, the, the, the thing that I think about there is, is mostly that like, there's, there's always this likeness that that's brought in and it's, it's used a little bit too broadly in the psychedelic space. But the idea is that psychedelics for people who really do need them for medical or therapeutic purposes can oftentimes see it as being a fresh coat of snow. If we're thinking of our minds as a ski hill, it's, you know, you're, you're, 
filling the gaps, even the playing field a little bit, a little bit, you know, bringing things back to the starting point. And if we think about it in that way, and I don't propose that that is the perfect, uh, the, the perfect analogy for all circumstances or for every psychedelic, but if we do simplify it so much into that situation, then it kind of has to be a pretty significant, you know, a, a, a pretty heavily used ski hill for, for that to, <laughs> to be necessary because, you know, we have to, you know, we, we want to build resilience in ourselves as people, yeah. as humans. So there's, there's an argument to be made that going through adversity has benefits. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But at a certain point, who doesn't benefit from a fresh coat of snow to, to help <laughs> from them time and time just, again. just come back to normal, take the pressure off? So there, I, I am a strong proponent, proponent of the, the belief that there are therapeutic and medical benefits to using it should the circumstances qualify. Um, I think there are a lot of people and there are a lot of considerations that we don't know about yet that may not be the best fit for it. Mm -hmm. But after more research is done and after a, a lot more, uh, you know, there, after there's more reporting, like anecdotal reporting of like how this stuff can help and how other patients can benefit from it. There's so much opportunity out there from a, from a medical standpoint uh, and for, for patients that are experiencing so many things because the, what you know the the big takeaway from my time working in, in a call center at a cannabis company, especially while it was just the medical regime in 2015, because the the recreational regime didn't come into play until 2018. Uh, it you know what really showed me was that we don't even scratch the surface when we talk about what people are experiencing in terms of symptoms and conditions. Like we really, really don't come close to understanding it all. So there's no ability to say from a blanket standpoint whether something is good or bad. Yeah. And we it's all dependent on the circumstances. It's incredibly contextual. So the ability to have another potential treatment available has always has enormous possibility. And the psychedelics are so broad and there's so many options of falling under this umbrella that the the opportunity is almost endless mm -hmm. you, you raise a really valid point in terms of variability and unpredictability regarding the psychedelic space and i feel that's what spoke to you know the ultimate um recreational legislation legislative enactment of the recreational space in can cannabis alone that research had to be done proposals had to be made and they had to be you know um, verified as well for government to, you know, put their foot forward and say, okay, we can do this. We can actually enact this, this cannabis act to open up this regular, uh, recre recreational space. So I, I agree with you in, in, in that regard too, where we might not know or have all the answers now, but the opportunities that are out there regarding the recreational space, um, vis-a-vis, Psychedelics, of course, have are are available as well. But I did want to turn as well to your um, little analogy with protecting our youth, because this is a, a prominent topic within the cannabis space specifically and flavors. So, as you know, in June of this year, the Department of Health published a regulatory impact analysis statement recommending that the cannabis regulations restrict the production, sale, promotion, 
and labeling of inhaled cannabis extracts from having any flavor whatsoever. So I was Googling some of these cannabis flavors and, and there are ridiculous names out there, you know, some sour diesels, some granddaddy purples that are probably quite attractive to our young folk. Um, and, but they would have to be dis discontinued if this proposal were to, you know, follow through and, 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 and be enacted. So if it were to be accepted, how do you see it impacting your clients specifically? How do you see the proposal as well impacting the Canadian cannabis industry as a whole? 100%. I think that's a very topical discussion as well. And, and just to take a step back for one moment, I think I was so long-winded in my last answer that I really didn't, didn't get to the point of, you know, predictability is key. Once we can predict, then recreational markets become a possibility. Mm -hmm. That is... That was my... That, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the key there. So moving on to the, the flavoring of inhalable extracts. So... I, I think it always helps to, to give a, a visual to this. And, and my thought always is let's think of this stuff in terms of your handy dandy vape pen. Uh, and, you know, that's what this is looking at. And what, what's really being looked at is so, so far as I'm aware, and this is my interpretation of it is that they're looking at removing non-naturally occurring flavorings from, from vape pens uh, and, and other inhalable extracts. So there, there's a lot of innovation in that space, actually. Um, so what they're, what they're saying really is let's remove all flavorings in terms, of, uh, in terms of making something taste a little bit sweeter. If there is, uh, you know, if, if there's a strain that has a, a fruity sense to it, there, you know, you can't really add anything in there to make it taste any better. Um, but at the same time, you know, a lot of that stuff was already, was already covered within the cannabis regulations. So the product composition requirements, this, this doesn't quite take us to a step that we didn't already experience before. The more experienced cannabis consumer oftentimes is going to be focused on other aspects of the plant that other people are not. So uh, let's think of this as in terms of, let's, let's contrast the middle-aged person who's trying cannabis for you know, who's, who's just getting back into cannabis consumption after, you know, a time in high school when they, when they used it every now and then without understanding all of the, you know, the, the bits and pieces of the characteristics. And then let's contrast that with a person who is a daily user or a, a daily consumer um, and is really focused on the interaction between the phytocannabinoids, the flavonoids, the terpenes, everything that, you know, we understand to contribute to this ethereal entourage effect. That, that, that's a whole different ballgame there. So there are companies now that are focusing on just the, the botanical terpenes. There are companies that are focusing on, on just flavor and trying to pull the best flavors out of the plant itself, uh, the all being naturally occurring pieces. Um, the... I, you know, the, the idea there is that essentially they don't want anything being added to a vape pen that would encourage a new type of consumer, really. The, 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 the government is focused on regulating and controlling, but not encouraging consumption. So that's the key here. They, they want to be able to have control and protect those who don't have experience or, or 
you know, don't understand the impacts of cannabis consumption because, of course, there are risks. There are risks with anything. There are risks with eating foods that have too much fat. Like it's uh, it's kind of the the same sort of idea here. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, the risks differ differ in magnitude, but that's that's also going to be a contextual analysis. Um, so here, I. I don't see the proposed change as actually changing the market that much. I think it changes the market for this one side consumer who hasn't used cannabis that much and doesn't really have a preference for tasting the the terpenes from the the plant from which it was extracted, isn't looking at for full spectrum uh, cannabis oil and you know would be okay using a distillate that has that is just really pure THC or a desired mix of THC and CBD that they're looking for. And that's all, that's all preference. It's all customer preference. So the idea that you can't make a vape that tastes like maple syrup, it's, uh, it's going to be, it's, it's, I don't think it's quite changing the ball game that much because there were already restrictions. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I'd have to take a look at the the specific details, but so far as I'm aware, there were already restrictions uh, under provisions of the cannabis regulations that say you can't use any flavorings and inhalable extracts that are listed in a particular schedule to the Tobacco and Vaping Products Act, I believe it is. Um, And that lists out things like confectionaries. Uh, I believe it was energy drinks might have been one of them, but you know, I, I don't remember the whole list in and of itself. But in any case, there were already restrictions on flavorings, and, and companies were getting creative. Uh, in the so the, one one of the key things to know about extracts is that in order to deliver the THC and CBD and other cannabinoids to a consumer you're going to need some sort of fat cell as essentially a carrier for your body in order to absorb it through its endocannabinoid system. And so one thing that in, in terms of extract specifically, they, they typically use something called a carrier oil. Um, and so that carrier oil, some companies got quite, quite uh, creative. creative with it. And so they would use carrier, oil, carrier oils that were made from mint or uh, <laughs> another another sort of uh, plant that, that tastes like mint. Um, so essentially you could get a, a, a vape pen out there that you'd inhale and it tastes just like you're having Listerine pretty much. And, you know, I can tell you personally, those are my favorite. Uh, those, <laughs> it's, you know, there's minty fresh breath. It's, it's all great. And then suddenly and the you're, you know, you're, and then you get the same sort of head and body feeling that you're, that you're desiring. Mm-hmm. So, there are ways in which to be creative within the realm of compliance. And I think that pushes the envelope for a lot of companies. Uh, like it, it, or it forces them to be innovative. And I, I think that's pretty fun. I'm obviously not, a, not part of one of these companies that has to deal with the operational and practical difficulties of having to, to be this, in, this innovative person. Um, but there is, I don't actually think that the, the proposed changes are, are changing the marketplace that much. Mm-hmm. Um, do I think they're really achieving the end goal of protecting, protecting youth and, or public health and safety and minimizing harms of use? No. I think we're, you know, people are going to use vape pens no matter what. If there's a desire and it doesn't taste bad, 
I think someone's going to use it. But just because a vape pen tastes like Skittles or apple juice like you can get in the U.S. doesn't mean someone's going to go out of their way to take a, a mind or body altering substance. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know if they're quite achieving their, their objectives with this, and I, I, I don't necessarily agree with the change. I think there could be positives from it. I'm a bit of a glass half full type of person when it comes mm-hmm. to that. So I see in interesting innovation coming out of it should it be enacted, but I don't see the effectiveness in pursuing the, the fundamental goals of regulation and legalization being pursued here. Your analogy with the the two different types of users being, you know, the experienced versus the inexperienced or the the one that um, hasn't used cannabis or or um cannabis vaping products for an extended period of time really makes sense and hits home your point too with regard to the sense of appreciation for these flavors um would the inexperienced user for example a a youth really really see that difference in 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 taste if all they're looking for is the the feeling you know the the mind and body feeling that the vaping product can 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 induce upon themselves so no, no you make some really valid arguments let's think of it this way And I know there are going to be people who refute this idea, but from my perspective, there are not many types of alcohol that actually taste good. (laughs) I can attest to that statement as well. Look, I'm not telling you I don't love a nice glass of red wine every now and then. Champagne tastes great, things like that. You know, look, the the, the easy drinks. but, you know, I do challenge you to say, let's sip on a glass of vodka without any ice in it and, and tell me <laughs> it, it tastes good. Uh, there, I've, Of course, there are people who love the taste and I don't blame them for that. Do I think they're incorrect from my perspective? Yes. <laughs> but uh, I, it doesn't stop people from drinking it. Mm-hmm. There is a the purpose to drinking it. There is a social aspect. There is a desired outcome aspect, a body and mind feel. Whether or not we're changing the taste of these vape pens doesn't make a difference. So I think so long as there is a desired feeling, there is nothing that's going to get in your way because these vape pens don't taste bad. Some alcohol does taste bad <laughs> and people still drink it. So make it as, as negative tasting as you want. We're still going to have people buying vape pens for the sole objective of relief and happiness, the dopamine rush that, you know, is, is unavoidable from, from really using this, this substance that just, you know, in, for, in, in a very simplified manner, just butters up your mind, really. Like changing your receptiveness to different neurotransmitters changes, changes the world for moments at a time. It, it's a condition of who's going to stop me. But no, Matt, thank you. That was all great. I, I guess the the final um, question for you, it, it just has to turn back to students and, you know, what they can do, you know, to better prepare themselves to enter the cannabis sector like you have done as well. Um, for instance, courses or any specific experiences, obviously your time at the startup was of tremendous value in terms of the um, experience that it, that it was able to provide and, and help you now in, in your day-to-day. But are there any other recommendations you can offer to students to kind of familiarize themselves with the sector before begin working or, you know, um, things they can do to just learn more as well? 
100%. And I think my, you know, I, I have recommendations in particular for, for cannabis and things that would relate to like psychedelics and things like that. But I think more generally, don't let anyone tell you that there's no ability to get ahead, that there's no ability to, to develop an expertise early on. Like I, I remember the summer where I first worked at a cannabis company before my start date, I, you know, someone told me, you know, maybe pull up the regulations that apply to this and just read through them, get that like base familiarity, not knowledge, familiarity so that the words don't seem completely novel. Mm -hmm. And I still remember sitting on my back porch, reading through the access to cannabis for medical purposes regulations in 2015, not understanding any bit of it. But when we had to, you know, open up the page for the first time, whether it was at the company itself when I was sitting at my call center desk or at Bennett Jones when I was a summer student. That like that base knowledge or base familiarity puts you just leaps and bounds ahead the game. of where you otherwise would be. And so, and you are never too young or too junior to be able to take these steps forward. So if you have an interest in having, in developing a practice in a particular space, start reading up on it, read newsletters, read websites that, that have, you know, industry participants writing, writing blogs or articles about it. Start understanding what are the companies that are in the industry dealing with on a day-to-day basis? Because the, what makes a lawyer a good lawyer is knowing the business. Mm-hmm. Any lawyer can know how to negotiate a decent agreement from a technical standpoint. But what really matters is, are you keeping the client's interests, priorities, and concerns in mind when you're doing so? So if you're going to be a lawyer in the space, know the business first. And that means doing anything and everything you can to learn about it. Talk to people, go to conferences, get tours of facilities if they're willing to give it to you. So learn how they're, you know, if, if let's, let's think about chocolate bar companies. Like if you want to learn how to be the best lawyer for chocolate bar companies or confectionery companies, look and see how they make that chocolate bar. So if they want to commission someone else to produce another bar for them in a different country, what do they need to be looking for? Should they have particular standards of performance that are included in a commercial agreement? These are all things to keep in mind that you really only know by knowing the business and knowing the industry. So get up to speed on the business. Uh, Then from, you know, from cannabis and the cannabis uh, standpoint in particular, there are so many investment banks that are putting out newsletters on a daily basis, talking about developments from the previous day's work. Uh, there are lots of blogs online. There are radio shows. Uh, there are web shows that are going on that talk about developments in the industry. Uh, there, there's so many different resources that you can lean on. Uh, and then, there, to be honest with you, there are so many lawyers in the space who are constantly contacted by people who are looking into it. Like I, you know, one of my very, very close friends. Uh, when he was considering going to law school, he came to Bennett Jones and wanted to speak with a cannabis lawyer there to hear and, and tech lawyer wow. and hear about the experience. And uh, and he and I, you know, we we hadn't become friends at the time, but I was set up to speak with him when I was a summer student, and we talked about what the experience was like as a lawyer. And then he told me, well, you know, I have this job opportunity working at this cannabis company, um, and I'm thinking about taking it. And we discussed it and we talked about, you know 
would it be better for him to defer going to law school? And what, you know, what's the, what's the next move? What's going to be best for him? And of course, you know, I wasn't going to tell him what to do, but we could talk about the pros and cons. Ultimately, he wound up never going to law school. He took that business job. It turned out to be his launch pad into the industry. And he's now the chief product development officer at a uh, licensed producer and is doing some really, really incredible things. But yeah, so shout out to the guys at Mira Cannabis Corp. And uh, I, I think they're going under the, the brand Avana, but they've put out some really great Pax vape cartridge pods. Uh, they're incredible products. And, you know, they're like, like I said, there, there are so many resources out there. Don't be afraid to call your local cannabis lawyer and, and ask them some advice or anything. You know, everyone in the industry is looking to help everyone in law is looking to hear and help in any way they can. Things are busy right now. So be patient, but it's, uh, <laughs> there's a, a lot of, of course. So just read up. It's never too early. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Matt. I learned a ton myself and I'm sure the viewers were able to learn and take away a magnificent, enormous amount of information given, you know, just this airing of this episode. So I really, really do appreciate you taking the time and just informing us on all things cannabis in terms of the industry, your own personal experiences and recommendations alike. So once more, thank you again. And, and I'm truly, truly, I'm grateful. Dude, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Sorry to have talked at you for what feels like 40 minutes straight. So hopefully it's of some benefit to someone. <laughs> no, I enjoyed every aspect of it. It was really, really insightful. So no, please don't apologize. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Well, that concludes episode two of Osgood's Health Law Association podcast. Once again, thank you to Matthew Sanders for joining us today. Um, I'm wishing everyone uh, a joyful holiday season as well as luck on finals that are approaching for, for students. So thanks again, everyone. And I hope to catch you on the next episode. Bye-bye.